In 2019, humanity received a warning. 30 of the world's leading scientists released the results of a massive three-year study into global agriculture and declared that meat production is destroying our planet and jeopardizing global health. One of the study's authors explained that humanity now poses a threat to the stability of the planet. This requires nothing less than a new global agricultural revolution. That was Bruce Frederick in 2019 talking about the need for a food revolution. Bruce Frederick is the founder and CEO of the Good Food Institute. We have with us a representative from the Good Food Institute, Chris Kraus, who heads up operations in Japan. Chris agreed to talk to us about his role at the GFI and the GFI's role in the food revolution for this TQ podcast on the future of food. Hello, Chris. It's great to have you here, and thanks for joining me on this podcast. Please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. So I'm based in Japan. Good Food Institute originally launched launched in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're a nonprofit, fully philanthropically funded, focusing 100% on altern- alternative proteins and the acceleration of alternative proteins and doing so from a policy perspective, from a direct research perspective and from an industry acceleration perspective. Um, So kind of, you know, working on it from all fronts and alternative proteins, as you may or may not know, um, that kind of speaks the the three categories that uh, GFI, Good Food Institute, kind of breaks it down into and most of the food world breaks it down into are plant-based proteins um and w- which you you'll know of for example you know uh beyond meat and possible burger yeah load good meat company loads and loads of different companies around the world um yeah. launching that base uh and then the other uh, another pillar being fermentation based um so that's actually taking strains bacterias mycoprotein uh and yeah using fermentation technology uh to kind of create proteins from what was originally just a small strain. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, if I understand correctly, sometimes uh, the the fermentation and the plant-based technologies can be kind of combined actually to create a final product, all with the name of getting the best uh, taste and texture possible. Yeah. Uh, and then the third kind of group and pillar is cultivated meat. Um, so that's, you know, coming directly from cell lines. So it's basically taking, uh, the cell, uh, of an animal, say for example, chicken cell of chicken breast, uh, and then kind of, uh, yeah, growing, growing it in, in a lab, uh, and, and kind of mimicking the process that happens in nature. Um, like when a chicken is naturally 
you know, growing or a cow or whatever it might be, uh, but growing just the individual organ there or parts um, and then getting it to the final stage where it's uh, actually consumable. And some people are a little bit shocked or, uh, you know, curious when they hear that answer. And I, I was too, the first time I heard about this kind of like, whoa, that's when we kind of look into when we compare that to you know, modern animal agriculture and all the inputs that are going into uh, to animals and the agricultural land being used and the massive amount of antibiotics being pumped into animals and the treatment of animals, um, then it's actually ends up being a much cleaner, potentially, you know, safer, um, yeah, and tastier, maybe healthier alternative if we can get it, uh, the technology there. So those are the three, sorry to kind of go on a tangent, but those yeah. are the... Th and do you think there's going to be a bit of a race uh, between those three different methods? Or do you think they're all going to kind of kind of grow alongside each other? And Yeah, it's a good question. I think they'll, I think what we're seeing now is they're, uh, they're all important. I mean, still all of alternative proteins is making up a pretty small share of protein consumption worldwide. Yeah. Um, and what we're starting to see are, uh, company is co companies that are combining, for example, like, uh, a really they've, they've, you know, come up with this formulation. That's a really tasty plant-based protein and they might combine it with, Actually, you can do the same thing in terms of cultivated. Uh, yeah. You can do like cultivated fat. So maybe they're using like a bit of cultivated fat cell, combining that with uh, like a plant-based protein, say, let make a burger, for example. Uh, so you'd have a burger, which was like part constructed from plants and then part constructed from actual fat cells. And it would be a bit mixing those technologies. And the feedback I've heard from people who have tasted some of those products is those like it mimics the real taste of meat almost yeah. to a T. Have you tasted any products, any cultivated meat products? I never have. I no. have I have not. Um, I, I'd like to. So currently the only place they're available in the world is Singapore. Um, right. So they're, they're actually on the market in Singapore and one or two outlets, not many places, but it's a good meat company out of San Fran who, uh, who got the regulation for that. And the FDA in the U.S. recently passed regulation um to allow a cultivated meat company there to to well they passed like a really large safety measure i think in the u.s it still does have another round maybe two to pass but basically this company passed very very rigorous uh safety tests and inspections from from the fda which was like quite a long process so that's kind of a good uh yeah. sign of it moving forward but um yeah so singapore is in many ways leading the way in, in terms of this, in terms of like policy makers really getting on board and kind of encouraging, encouraging yeah. this. But we expect to see it happening in, in other countries. And there's certainly a lot of investment in R&D being done in it. I also heard uh, that one of the reasons that they are mixing plant-based and cultivated meat is for price, is for cost, you know, so they can keep the cost down because if, if they had a pure kind of cultivated meat burger it's still going to be out of the reach of the normal consumer yeah yeah absolutely so right. currently at the stage it's at now yeah as you can imagine uh bringing a fully cultivated product all the way to shelf to consumer is still quite yeah. pricey i mean all the hoops to jump through and even yeah getting the taste texture uh everything it, while it's largely there you yeah. know still 
is not yet reaching like price parity with uh with you know traditional animal agriculture so yeah definitely that's another way to maybe bring the price uh down and make yeah. it accessible to to consumers I, i've seen that it's sort of mainly sort of san francisco israel and singapore and the netherlands that are that are that are the big hitters in this space and brazil there's you know a good good amount of interest and brazil you know home to some of the uh home to a lot of like some of the larger meat companies and meat production companies so i think there's potential uh to kind of like disrupt that or maybe work with okay. <laughs> um you know s some of that some of those larger companies to transition protein supply i put the question to friends of mine um if the, if they had a burger um that that's that was completely kind of cultured um and they had a burger that had come from a slaughtered animal but they but they looked and they tasted and they smelt exactly the same which of those two would they choose to eat and they both told they both told me that they'd rather the slaughtered animal than the than the, than the other one which which really shocked me it surprised me how do you find that the the kind of taking up of this of this new idea is going yeah actually i guess to, yeah to 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 speak to that point it's actually when i've mentioned it to like my friends and family members who are who are closer to my age they and kind of i explained just a sentence or two about the why behind it mm. um they actually aren't so put off by the idea they they all said they'd be curious to curious to try it and kind of okay. understand the reasons why i think it's more so when kind of reading some of the comments and reactions that i've read like online from people underneath an article for example or you know certain people who are kind of higher up in the food world who don't don't like it don't like the sound of it and they kind of speak out strongly against it um yeah uh, and but yeah to be honest the people i've asked they're all kind of like their ears perk up a bit and they're kind of like curious about it <laughs> and uh and what do you think the average person is going to think about about this kind of change are you do you mean in terms of cultivated meat or all cultivated meat. i think cultivated meat is the one that is really going to to create problems i mean i see plant-based has been a, around for a while and sort of fermentation-based food is has has been around for a while you know if you think of, sort of tofu and and all of it. yeah yeah i think it, it i think it will remain a problem for some people based on kind of what you're saying that we we do get in habits and in routines and potentially ruts when it comes to what we're eating and consuming i think we're all kind of, we we all can be a bit like that but i also think um amongst this generation and in certain places uh including japan people are very food curious and um and kind of want to and, and are excited to try something new so if you can combine that food curiosity with um a bit of like ethical principled uh decision making and i think there's a lot of that amongst um i i think japan in general on a certain level but especially when it comes to like climate change and sustainability amongst okay. the, the younger generation in japan um, I think when those two forces combined, then like tradition and routine is going to be surpassed um, and and kind of kind of overcome. And if it's in order to like catch on anywhere mainstream, um, well, in Japan and, and elsewhere, it needs to, you know, 
taste the same or better or cost the same or less. That's kind of the, what uh, some folks at GFI say a lot as the kind of benchmark for what we're aiming for. And, and I agree with that. The Japanese consumer is quite concerned with taste, cost and nutrition. Um, and mm-hmm. that will be the case that a lot of it is going to be um, going to be part of kind of frozen chicken nuggets and frozen foods, which people won't necessarily know that the meat that's there is lab grown rather than from actual actual factory farming or something like that. I mean, if, if you're prepared to eat meat from that's been factory farmed, then perhaps you don't really care where your meat comes from. Right now, how many of us know you know, the hundreds of ingredients that are in our pantries in different boxes or packages of food. And uh, how many of us, you know, uh, this is not, this is just to say how, how the nature of food is, you know, amongst the, I guess, developed or hyper-developed world where Mm. we don't really know the, uh, yeah, the the main source or all the materials or ingredients of our food. I'm not saying this is an excuse. I, I yeah. like I'm not using it this way. I, I think we should go go closer to the source of our food. Um, and it's not not a good thing to be disconnected from where our food comes from. But I don't think it's a large leap from, uh, you know, buying something in a package today, including meat, and not knowing much about the provenance of that meat. Uh, right. And then buying, for example, like a packaged uh, meat, like cultivated meat that was grown safely uh, and with a lot of precautions taken in a, in a lab that that might be, you know, appear, taste and cook up better. I don't think it's such a large leap, although it's like the process of getting there is, is of course, quite different. But it, yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure how, how it look. Um, and I don't think it will be hidden. I think you know bodies like the fda and like and what do you think the uh the hurdles are going to be there will likely be like pushback from uh you know the vested interests and in, in animal agriculture but uh but at the same time i think gfi for example does a does a good job of speaking with and working with uh and doing some joint research and collaboration with uh some of the larger uh, like animal ag companies to to not just pin an us against them story situation narrative, but to actually kind of like, I think some of the animal ag companies, they just want to provide and sell uh, a clean source of protein to people. And if, and the, you know, some of them um, at the higher levels aren't as attached to, you know, how that protein gets delivered from point A to B to C to the, to the final consumer you know, the way that factory farming is happening now, you know, does need to change. And uh, whether you think that that change should come through more alternative protein options, or through something like regenerative farming and more kind of grass fed animals, you know, there are a lot of interesting, smart, good people working on that side of the spectrum as well. And I'm, I'm speaking kind of independently now, not with the GFI hat on, but I think the more that that side of things can kind of grow along with the alternative protein side. I don't mm-hmm. think we need to like pin uh, one against the other as some leaders in the space kind of do. Uh, I think like both the regenerative farm and, and ag movement need to grow. And that sometimes involves animals. And so is this part of uh, the work of the Good Food Institute then to, to kind of bridge that gap between 
the agricultural industry and and the kind of new sort of biotech? Uh, yeah, I think yes, in in a sense. Um, although you know, animal derived proteins are are certainly never a part of the the mission and the acceleration that GFI is pushing for. But GFI is not excluding um, those larger animal ag companies from from the conversation. So it's not a finger pointing battle. It's because uh, we realize, you know they're the ones that kind of do hold the market and hold the power at the moment. And it's um, to make like real change on a global scale, you know, in the time frame that we need to, to make it and clean up uh, sources of protein globally, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking with and having them at the table and transitioning, I think their business models and raw materials and all of that is, is a huge part of it. You see that the eating habits have changed between, say, your parents' uh, generation and your own. Our economy has gotten stronger, and it's um, then food has kind of gone from something that we kind of spent a lot of time and energy and resources on, yeah, um, to something which uh, is kind of more almost interest hobby. Uh, or, you know, at times, of course, just necessity. Um, but I think there's a, there's a book that comes to mind. I I haven't read it yet, but I've like read about it and following the author and it's by Eve Turo Paul. And she wrote a book called, uh, hungry. Uh, what's, what's this subtitle? I'm forgetting, but it's about like this generation's, um, relationship to food and kind of like, influencer culture and obsession with something like avocado toast you know and and kind of like how we're also using that to build community and connection and so i see a lot of people of my generation and younger for example um with a revived interest in food and and a you know and as and a curiosity around food and i think i think that is a good thing and i think that should be harness to um I, I think along with that you know some of the interesting restaurateurs food voices etc are just you know kind of like doing it for tasty or interesting food but many of them are also quite connected to where the food's coming from how it's being made how it's being produced the story behind it i think everyone who I know more or less would be into the story of like a farm to table restaurant and the reasons behind it. And, you know, going to visit a farm and, you know, cooking some of their own food. I think it's like a pretty well-respected thing to do to be close to your food amongst, amongst my generation for sure. And I think that's a, I think that's a very good thing. And, and I, I go back and forth a bit between well you can have both but um like I, I think during the pandemic as well there were kind of a lot of people just I guess anecdotally but I've also read a bit about this people like moving out of cities and kind of more towards growing some of their own food or having a yes. more substantial garden um and I think that's amazing it seems that uh, over time food has gone from being one of our sort of main you know main focuses um you know we would have been focused on food and shelter yeah and and kind of everything else was uh, was kind of secondary in the west at least we have 
so much of it that it's you know we can afford to kind of of, of kind of concentrate on our work but then food is a joy it's a it's a, a passion or a hobby and how do you think that might change in the future like with the next generation what if you were to sort of predict yeah i mean it's a it's a great question and and actually many governments including japan you know japanese government are trying to answer that question uh because there's in many areas that it, it, even in the us and and i guess probably most countries um where the farmer and the food producing population is is getting older and older and it's hard to get younger people interested so uh yeah japan has some ideas and plans around um and i'll just speak i guess not not only japan but maybe globally their kind of desires um to get people you know more back back to the land and and i think that's fantastic um it's not happening in japan for example in the numbers that it kind of needs to happen in order to like revitalize rural agricultural areas because uh, most young people are just interested in moving to the to the bigger cities um so we have to look at interesting food production that can happen you know in more urban environments as well um but yeah there there are programs there are offices where you can kind of walk in and get information about moving to the more rural areas prefectures and i think they are paying some people to yeah to kind of to do that to go populate these areas um yeah i want to go grow at least part of my food or like you know maybe know the farmer down the street from me and try to like the, people are interested in shortening supply chains and i also think that's that's yeah. great that's excellent and there's like a yeah I mean, that almost goes against the idea of, of kind of food tech, though, doesn't it? And the idea of going back to basics. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no one answer. Right. I mean, like what? Like there, there it's not like this or that. I mean, if if, you know, a few million or billion people go back to the land and then there's a few million of the brightest minds working on food tech, those two can work beautifully in tandem. Right. I mean, it doesn't need to be this like paired against uh, like this kind of battle. I mean, I think the more we can improve the the ingredients and the raw materials and the food and the packaging uh, coming to shelf and ideally reduce carbon footprint and miles traveled, the better. And that will take people both getting back to the land and some probably pretty high-tech innovative ideas so i think there's a bit of a place for multiple philosophies and skill sets within the new food transition why do we need to change the way we eat yeah so i mean as the population booms and uh and simultaneously uh you know society's transition to to become wealthier typically what's happening is they're eating more meat and the agricultural land available globally i believe around 70 percent of it is used to grow crops to feed to animals so we're we're really not utilizing our available agricultural land in the smartest way possible um and and you know no that that's not for for example like grass fed beef or something that that's a different story but that only makes up quite a small percentage of the of the meat that's actually being consumed um but yeah mowing down acres of rainforest or 
you know, other viable lands, um, or especially rainforests is, is pretty, pretty awful situation in order to, you know, harvest cows on that land or grow, grow crops in a, in a monocropping way to, uh, to meet the demand for, for, you know, meat globally is, uh, yeah, we're going to run out of space. And, uh, another piece of it is, um, the public health piece around antibiotics. So we're feeding farm animals at least twice the amount or potentially more, um, of the like antibiotics as, as, as are available to humans. Uh, and this could, you know, largely result in antibiotic resistance. Um, and from what I understand, um, yeah, it's kind of could, could end up being a pretty, pretty bad situation. Um, if, if we don't have antibiotics available that are much needed for, for humans that we've given to farm animals, and then there have become some kind of resistant strains zoonotic diseases uh coming from that if it's a race between sort of changing people's attitudes to the food they eat or changing the food they eat which you know which one of those do you think is more likely to the latter for sure changing i think i i believe yeah changing the food that they eat is the uh, just because i think the work should continue on changing attitudes and on consumer awareness and education absolutely should continue full steam ahead but we've kind of seen that it's um yeah and when i say we just like in in the food world and in the people who care about sustainable food systems um yeah behavior change uh, and changing what people consume day to day it's it's quite difficult to, to to convince people or to change patterns it takes like a pretty significant disruption in their life or pretty or it can change over time but um but it it's not really you know from a lot of the work that and research that's gone into it it's not happening at at a pace fast enough to align with you know climate goals um and so you know changing the mechanisms by which people are getting their food uh kind of i guess a bit of a more top-down approach or working within the systems that are that are in existence rather than trying to you know completely dismantle them but um yeah getting the food to people that they for whatever reason want to eat um it is probably going to be the more successful path and not not that that's easy or anything. I mean, that that has its own massive set of hurdles to a certain extent. We have to work within, uh, you know, what, what has become the human experiment and the way people operate, eat, you know, commute, sleep, and then go about their days. We can't just totally throw that on its head and, and imagine something completely new. The work of, good journalism, good educators, um, and, you know, maybe in some instances, you know, yeah, yeah, good policymakers or, you know, ethical business people um, has gotten us to a point where now isn't the, isn't World Economic Forum or Davos meeting happening like now or, you know, where I think I imagine every meeting or every other meeting 
you know, the like SDG goals or sustainability goals are at least going to be mentioned. And I'm not saying that there's not loads of, you know, greenwashing <laughs> happening. There, There is, but yeah. it's at least on the global radar and on the industry radar at such a high level that, you know, no business uh, can afford to or would imagine at this stage not having some kind of sustainability initiative or people working full time on sustainable projects. So yeah, over it's taken a long time and maybe too much time, but there has been progress made. And I think if, you know, if we imagine the next 10, 15 years, as long as we don't all just get like crazy levels of climate fatigue or something, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that the, these meetings, these initiatives are going to continue to be pushed further and like baked into the, you know, corporate strategy and things like that, hopefully. Is your organization involved politically? Yeah. So actually GFI was one of the few uh, organizations that was part of planning the food pavilion for COP27 in Egypt okay. and a big part of getting the uh, product to uh, the, the eat just or the good meat is their cultivated meat arm okay. uh, and getting the product there for policymakers to try and to have, you know, higher level meetings and conversations about that. Um, so yeah, there are definitely full-time uh, po policy focused team members on, uh, on the GFI team uh, working in, working in, yeah, I think every country that we're operational in, there's at least one or, a, or a, a few members of those teams working on the policy side. So that's a big focus of, yeah, so both kind of uh, research policy recommendations, uh, white papers, presenting those to policymakers, ha having these meetings, um, like I was saying in Japan, like regulatory science seems to be uh, a pretty big need for the ministries here, as well as the um, as well as some of the companies. So um, we we do talk to uh, governments and, and kind of see where they stand um, and see where there are opportunities to uh, work together with them to build alternative proteins into their overall like food and sustainability strategies. So yeah, that's, that's a big part of what GFI does. Okay. And are you a vegetarian yourself, Chris? So I, I was, yeah, I was, and I, I do consume uh, far less meat, probably like once a week. Okay. I'm not currently. Um, yeah. So even, yeah, I'm not you say you're 100% animal free in my diet. Yeah. It, it's it, sounds like it sounds like you're a little bit like me. You um uh you know, I have been vegetarian a number of times over my life, but now I'm 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 just sort of a bit more I am a flexitarian um I think yeah. is the term which mm. which, uh, which I suppose is is who this new technology is aimed at and I'm, I'm i'm talking about i'm talking about sort of cultured meat it's like mm. i love the taste of meat and and you know and it's very hard to sort of give it up but i yeah. uh i i would like to sort of eat meat guilt-free yeah some people say there's no benefit to eating animal meat other people say there is benefit to so if, yeah. if cultivated meat you know comes into the picture ideally it would be done in a way that delivers you know health benefits that one might expect from from eating animal meat as well and that that's certainly a part of the like r&d that's going on within it so yeah for sure there's nothing more i'd love than you know and it might be the reality in five ten years is buying something that's either 
you know, I went to the grocery store today and bought a few plant-based products here in Japan um, yeah. that are kind of like meat analogs. And uh, yeah, I would love to have um, the option to buy something that's maybe like, yeah, cultivated meat at, at a decent price in the, in the coming years. It seems certain to me, at least, that, um, that we can agree change is definitely coming. The future of food is probably going to look very different to what it looks like today um thank you chris that's that's all we have time for i'm afraid uh, i thought it'd be good to finish by listening to some more words from your boss at the good food institute uh that leaves me nothing else to say but to thank roy smith for the music and thank you very much for listening as somebody who spent the last two decades advocating a shift away from industrial meat production I wanted to believe that this clarion call was going to make a difference. The thing is, I've seen this sort of thing again and again and again for decades. The main point of these studies tends to be climate change, but antibiotic resistance represents just as big of a threat. We are feeding massive doses of antibiotics to farm animals. These antibiotics are then mutating into superbugs that threaten to render antibiotics obsolete within all of our lifetimes. You want to scare? Google the end of working antibiotics. I want to get one thing out of the way. I am not here to tell anybody what to eat. Individual action is great, but antibiotic resistance and climate change, they require more. Besides, convincing the world to eat less meat hasn't worked. For 50 years, environmentalists, global health experts, and animal activists have been begging the public to eat less meat. And yet per capita meat consumption is as high as it's been in recorded history. The average North American last year ate more than 200 pounds of meat, and I didn't eat any. Which means somebody out there ate 400 pounds of meat. <laughs> On our current trajectory, we're gonna need to be producing 70 to 100% more meat by 2050. This requires a global solution. What we need to do is we need to produce the meat that people love, but we need to produce it in a whole new way. I've got a couple of ideas. Idea number one, let's grow meat from plants. Instead of growing plants, feeding them to animals and all of that inefficiency, let's grow those plants, let's biomimic meat with them. Let's make plant-based meat. Idea number two, for actual animal meat, let's grow it directly from cells. Instead of growing live animals, let's grow the cells directly. Take six weeks to grow a chicken to slaughter weight. Grow the cells directly, you can get that same growth in six days. It's your friendly neighborhood meat brewery. <laughs> I wanna make two points about this. The first one is, we believe we can do it. In recent years, some companies have been producing meat from plants that consumers cannot distinguish from actual animal meat. And there are now dozens of companies growing actual animal meat directly from cells. This plant-based and cell-based meat gives consumers everything that they love about meat, the taste, the texture, and so on, but with no need for antibiotics and with a fraction of the adverse impact on the climate. And because these two technologies are so much more efficient, at production scale, these products will be cheaper. But one quick point about that, it's not going to be easy 